Welcome to episode 32 of the 905er. My name is Roland Tanner. I am Joel McLeod. And this is part two of our look back over the first year of the 905er podcast. Uh, well, the first half year, we started in July, and um, this is our last episode uh, before we take a very short break before starting up again in the new year. The last episode, we looked at some of my favorite stories, if you like, uh, and today it's Joel's turn. So, Joel, what are, what are the stories you'd like to uh, take another look at? Well, I look back on our 30-some-odd episodes, and I thought, one of the ones that I think we'll, we'll, we'll be revisiting in 2021 was episode 11, which was our episode with uh, Deirdre Pike and Jesse Golem on uh, the uh, Universal Basic Income Pilot Project in Hamilton. Um, I, I, this was something I, I wanted to... I know. I remember I pitched to you, Roland, because I thought this is going to be something that's going to be big. With the COVID-19, the federal government stepping in and, and chipping in at first with CERB and now the, the COVID response benefit as well as the wage subsidy and then the rent assistance program. Uh, the federal government, we discovered that the federal government can step up to the plate and help alleviate a lot of gaps in the EI program. And we, I think we discovered that the EI program doesn't really help in a pinch and whatnot. And so it's interesting that we did have a UBI pilot program in the province focusing, uh, one of the areas that was focused on was Hamilton. And uh, Jesse Golem was a participant in that program. And it was enlightening to hear her experience with getting a UBI on a, on a monthly basis and what that was able to do to transform her life and her economic station and the kind of possibilities that that started to open up. And I thought, this is something that I... I, I don't know. I don't have any. I don't have any plugins into the federal government, but I can foresee in the next budget some kind of UBI or a UBI-like program uh, being implemented to kind of spearhead the economic recovery from COVID nineteen in twenty twenty one. And it's almost like, in, in a way, we've had. They haven't called it a UBI, but uh, and also there are people who are not included in the various uh, things that the federal government's put in place. It's a little bit like an experiment in UBI, and that we took a decision. The usual benefit system seems designed to, I don't think there's any seems about it. I think it's definitely designed to make life uncomfortable for people who have to live on benefits because it's this assumption that, well, if, you, if you're too good to them, they're just going to sit there and, and play computer games or whatever and do nothing. When time and time and again, it's been proved that that's not actually how the world works. And uh, people just want to get on and have the opportunity to earn a living and have a good life. Mm-hmm. So it'd be interesting to see if, if the public appetite has changed because of this, but because so many people have kind of suddenly, unexpectedly found themselves in need of government help. People who maybe in normal course of, of things would never have considered themselves to be uh, uh, likely to need that that support. Right. You would hope that people will kind of learn that lesson um, I, I think the attitude towards it as a as a program as a whole has shifted. I agree with your your assessment there, Roland, about the myth of oh, if you just give poor people money, they'll waste it away on you know beer and popcorn, and that's not true. Nobody wants to be dependent, but at the same time, like it, I've been on yeah, yeah. I remember there was a point in my in my life when I personally had uh my you know my my livelihood ended for reasons that were complicated and I don't have time to get into it. But all of a sudden I was out of work and I had no EI. I had, I had been self-employed. My business had ended and I was like, well, what do I do? 
And I was lucky that I had a friend who offered me a job and I took it and I was with them for four years. I had plans to use that to springboard into other ventures. I, I had plans to go back to school. I was going to go get a diploma and, and upgrade my skill set. And then I was going to take my newfound skills and go out into the workforce and become a productive member of society. All that jazz. That didn't happen. Because to get the experience with my new skills, basically I would have had to have quit my job and just start doing other work to get that work experience. Um, you say, oh, get, once you get a job, you can go out and you can find other work. And it's it's hard. Like you, If you're in a minimum wage job, I was not in a minimum wage job, but if you are, because you're like, oh, I just need this to pay the bills to get through, you realize to get to make enough money to pay the bills nowadays to just survive, you have to work longer and longer hours, which cuts into your time to say, well, I want to do my passion working in X, Y, and Z, you're doing this minimum minimum wage job that you're not getting the experience for. And really like you're underemployed. You're you're not being the best productive member of society. You're just you're not collecting EI. And I guess in certain circles that might be the win. Um I thought Jesse's story that she presented to us was enlightening that if I recall, we know episode eleven. So she was talking about having to work two part-time jobs and she was and that was exactly her story she just had to go back to you know i need to pick up another shift to make rent or to pay buy food or, or pay the electric bill or whatever and she's not able to put her passion into what she wants to do which was conveniently enough be an entrepreneur and start her own business and i, I found it interesting that she said as soon as she's got on the ubi she's like oh my rent's taken care of okay you know check done don't have to worry about that and she was able to put together a business plan go get a loan that put together a plan. And I thought that was, is that far more beneficial than an EI program where you're just penalized for not having a job? Essentially is what EI kind of has turned out to be. Yeah, well, it creates a poverty trap, doesn't it? Anyway, you're forced to take jobs that aren't that great and don't pay well. You know, if you want to start a business, and obviously a lot of people who find themselves on, on EI, like you said, uh, are people who, who are entrepreneurial. What's that? I don't know what the statistic is, but it's like, you know, 60% of all new businesses fail or something like that. I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah. on that. But I mean, obviously, a lot of new businesses don't make it through the first year. Uh, the majority, are, I'm fairly sure. So these are people who who are inventive, creative, who are thinking of new ideas, who are self-starters, who are motivated, who we then trap in, well, you know, you you got to have a job, so go to go work in a restaurant for um, uh, 14 bucks an hour or whatever it is. Um yeah, it, it's counterproductive. I mean, and yeah, Jesse's uh, story was was a perfect example of that, of someone who's obviously very uh, gifted in many ways. Uh, I think it was a, a, a very talented photographer and a pianist as well. I think when we spoke to her, she was just getting to the point where maybe she could consider doing it all these years later, you know, two years later, maybe she could get there, but it'd been made unnecessarily difficult for her in, in effect. And, you know, that's the problem is that we, we're, you know, the idea of just giving you money and saying, there's no strengths attached, there's no quid pro quo, you don't have to, you know, file paperwork, you don't have to prove you're, you're clean or, or whatever. It's just, here's money, spend it how you want. You know, you think about it like that, you, the majority of people would put it into either, I, I'll put it into a new, uh, uh, get a business loan, I'll, put, I'll pay rent so I can save more money, put that away. Uh, I can, you know, I, if I need to, put it towards going back to school to upgrade my skills and, you know, finish off a degree or, or maybe look into getting a, a master's degree or, or what, whatever the case may be. That's what happens. 
And I really think that my hope is at the federal level, Justin Trudeau and the liberals are getting into, he's thinking of a legacy uh, to, to leave because I can't imagine he wants to stick around too much longer. I hope he doesn't. I hope he's thinking of, of an exit strategy. I, I'm not bashing Justin Trudeau, but I do believe every prime minister should have an exit strategy. I'm hoping that maybe if he, he and Christopher Freeland look into implementing this kind of as his legacy for Canada, his, you know, I, I think it would go a long way to reshaping how this country interacts, not just in terms of the job front, but really how a lot of aspects of our society interact. If you think of how many women are, are trapped in abusive relationships because they don't have the financial capability to leave, a UBI could could change that. If you think of the entrepreneurs that can that all of a sudden can have access to some capital to start a business, what that might mean for our economy down the road. I want to believe that the lesson that we take away from COVID-19 is that instead of looking into investing in corporations and hoping for the, you know, for the best that, oh, maybe this corporation is going to produce the winning gadget or technology that is going to be able to sell, uh, this country starts looking more into investing in people, putting money into the hands of people and have that go into uh, into the economy to generate jobs, growth, all those good things that we that we want to see in Canada. And I think it's really been proven again and again that that investment pays off. People drive the economy. I mean, this is why Canada has always been a nation that encourages immigration, um, because we have the space and it's a guaranteed uh, driver of the economy. Investment in people is what it's all about. And to get away from these ridiculous notions of distrusting people or seeing it as a handout rather than investment you know, we, we we as a nation can only compete on our skill levels and our education because we can't compete on cost with China. No. And it doesn't matter who's running the government. It could be the conservatives, it could be the liberals. We're never going to compete with, you know, Bangladesh or someone like that on, on those kind of raw material costs. We have to compete on, on knowledge, entrepreneurship, um, and technology. And it, it seems more and more that, that we're going to have to look at this kind of approach as you know, certain longstanding careers that have been around disappear, maybe because you know, we've got driverless cars or you know, all these things that are happening. Uh, we need to start thinking about how we organize ourselves in a different way. And again, it's like for some reason we, we've, we've got used to governments that have modest ambitions and maybe that's because you know to, to take the example of of the provincial liberal government they had some pretty ambitious objectives and they are no longer the government of ontario but it'd be nice to see a government really set out that kind of like okay we're gonna do something big and you're gonna remember this for the rest of time this will be the government that introduced ubi it's going to go down with the introduction of uh universal health care or you know Right. For some reason, we 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 don't expect that from governments anymore, and I don't know why that is. Well, it's, um, well, it's the belief of you know undersell, overperform, which is great. You can do that, but you know I can't think of a better way to overperform right now than saying we're going to implement a UBI. Uh, but you know what you mentioned about innovation a few moments ago, Roland, and that I'm going to use that to springboard onto my other episodes that I thought were that always tend to catch my eye was uh, we had episode. In our fifth episode, episode five, we had Jason Cassis, who had started up a small food operation called Mama Rosa. And then we had episode 10, which was we talked with Andrea Kaiser uh, with wineries of uh, Niagara on the Lake. And the reason why th those two caught my eye was in both cases, 
it was a, a study of how COVID-19 has forced business to innovate and to go down new paths to shift their model. And basically, it, really embracing technology and internet sales and doing that to reshape how they sell their their products to the to the Ontario consumer. My hope is it doesn't end there. My my hope is that COVID nineteen it looks like it's going to be sticking around for a good chunk of twenty twenty one. And you know the idea of online sales, online buying your wine and your food online and having it delivered to your door is going to be the definitely the wave of the future. Uh, we're going to see, I think more integration of technology into our lives. We've seen that definitely in the past year. The the idea of you know, the infamous Zoom call is now the go-to method of communication for for majority of people around the world. Uh, we have more people working from home. We have more people purchasing things online and having them deliver the next day. And I think that you're going to start seeing that, that trend. I don't think that trend's going away. I think it's going to just multiply and multiply exponentially. And you'll, you're going to see the speedy introduction of more automation into the workforce. We knew it was coming. I think COVID-19 is just going to try and speed it up into the workforce. More manufacturing is going to be, become automated. Uh, and the idea of you know same-day delivery is going to be ubiquitous with uh, whatever wares you, you purchase. And it'd be good to see the kind of monopoly of Amazon uh, starting to break down there that we think about, do I have to buy it from Amazon? Maybe they sell it, but maybe I could get it from a company closer to home. Um, that's maybe, maybe it's manufactured in Canada. Maybe it's whatever. Uh, I remember having a conversation with someone years ago, and I think it was a, uh, I think it was a counselor actually from Oakville. And he was predicting that, you know, well, everybody's going to be unemployed in a few years because all these, all the working class jobs are going away. And I don't actually believe that. Um, because it's happened so many times in history already. You know, we don't have many people working in uh, cotton mills anymore or uh, coal mines. Uh, very low employment in those areas these days. Uh, we don't have a lot of people shoveling horse shit on the. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, uh, farriers, you know, find it very difficult to find the same amount of work as they did in uh, 1870. The economy finds a way. Uh, people and people are endlessly inventive and find things uh, that are marketable. In some ways, I think these things have an, uh, an amazing capability to take care of themselves. Obviously, governments have to play a role in that as well. And again, it comes back to education, all those things. But things are changing, and I do think um, actually um, Stuart Pike, uh, Canon Stuart Pike, we spoke to just in the, uh, the episode the other day, said. Um, I think I'm quoting him correctly here that that you know COVID had given him a, a kick up the backside in terms of technology that's actually been there for a good long time and yet they hadn't gotten around to using it and now they realise that they can and they realise the advantages of it um, that they can reach more people through Zoom or or uh, YouTube or whatever and you know it's like if we have fewer commuters like a lot fewer commuters now because so many people have just decided hey I can work at home uh, there's absolutely no reason why I have to cart into Toronto every day to do whatever that's a fantastic change you know for so many reasons that is something that always blows my mind is if I'm driving out in the middle of the day and you drive past the ghost station and I invite our listeners to do the same the ghost stations in your respective communities Drive by the parking lot and you'll see it's empty, it's barren. And I said, I, th- I said to my wife, I said, "Oh my god, I've never seen that parking lot at noon 
empty mm-hmm. any day of the week, mm-hmm. any any weekday. I've never seen it empty, and it's empty now. And I thought, you know, the, all those jobs they're they're getting done. They're, there's somebody sitting at home on their computer. They're having their Zoom calls. They're working away. They're plugging away. They're sending emails, and all this work's getting done. And we're not seeing any productivity lost on that front. What we are seeing is. Yeah, those frontline worker jobs, the kind of the minimum, the minimum wage jobs are the ones that people still need to go to. And should they, those wages go up? Probably. I mean, if they, if all of a sudden we learn like, wow, we can't get along without you, clearly your labor is worth a lot more yeah, yeah. than we thought so. There's a big shift, I think, happening in our, from our experience with this virus, this pandemic. What's important has shifted. And I would like to see our economy match that, which where I could see yeah, you know, there's more automation, more technology being implemented into their stores uh, in our workplaces and helping small businesses get access to greater technology to sell wares, uh, sell their products, sell their services, not just locally, but really on an international market. Mm-hmm. If you mm-hmm. think about it, we've talked about reopening markets on an international to Europe, uh, Australia, Indonesia, Japan, uh, back into the United States once they get their act together. Uh, and and likewise, and then you know I, I brought up the UBI issue because I thought that to me is the cushion for the transition because transitions are never easy they're not they never go smoothly history has shown us that whenever a transition from one you know from the agricultural age to the industrial re- revolution was brutal for people it was it was devastating for for humanity and I'd like to think maybe we've learned that lesson and we can do something like, like a UBI to give people a cushion in the transition to give people a chance to go back and re-educate themselves, to find a new place for themselves in the new economy that's emerging. Because you're right, a new economy will emerge. There'll be new jobs. There'll be new ideas. I don't think there'll be minimum wage, minimum talent jobs. And and it'd be good not to have those casualties along the way of of people who – whose job has disappeared, mm-hmm. who never work again because they're not able to get retrained or right. end up living on the street because they don't have the money to retrain or the, to, to have a safety net that not only is a safety net, but also means that uh, someone who, I'm just using taxi drivers as kind of the, the easy example of an industry we think. It's a good example. Yeah. Um, that's something, that's just a job that's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, I mean, again, going back to the horses again, mm-hmm. uh, that that may well go away. And all those people uh, will need retraining in, in different things because they'll have a huge amount to give, but, but that they will need help. And uh, yeah, I, and, uh, you know, coming to the end of a, of a very dramatic year and the start of another one, which may be hopefully a little less dramatic, but certainly is not going to be... Um, what we would have ever considered life as normal uh, anytime soon. I think it would be a good time to to have those kind of big ideas come to the fore again, rather than governments that niggle around the edges with stuff. And certainly rather than governments that seem to just be obsessed with dragging us back into the past and propping up industries that... that uh, Going the way of the dinosaur. Exactly. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, I, I think Trudeau, you know, he's halfway through his second term. If I have a criticism of him, actually, I have a few. <laughs> uh, I would say it's that they've been too blasted cautious. Yeah. And actually, we have a, a fine example in Canada of what a minority government can do uh, by cooperating with other parties and working closely with them because it happened with, uh, oh, Remind me, Joel, you're probably a... <laughs> Lester B. Pearson. That's the one. <laughs> um, 
apologies for my terrible uh, Canadian history. I uh, grew up in the wrong place. But you're right. Pearson brought us uh, uh, the flag, brought us universal health care, uh, and a, a, a slew of other things that we take for granted today um, were introduced by Lester B. Pearson in a minority government. Uh, which is why he, minority government in about four years, three years, four years, all done. Yeah, and which is uh, you know the argument of why he is considered to be one of our greatest prime ministers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and bizarrely, in the UK, it wasn't a minority government; it was a very big majority government. But uh, prime minister, most people outside of the UK have never heard of, and a lot of British people have never heard of. Clement Attlee uh, was the guy who introduced Britain's equivalent of that in four years. He never got re-elected. Uh, he was turfed out in in favor of the final return of Winston Churchill. These are people who who completely changed the direction of their country's history and kind of sense of self in many ways. Because certainly Canada, uh, you know, when we think of what it is to be Canadian, we often think of things like universal basic health care, uh, things like that, uh, as kind of making us who we are. And they did it quickly, and they did it by just saying, you know what, we're going to do this. It's going to be done. Boom. uh, and created things that we all agree are absolutely or almost all agree are absolutely essential to to our way of life that's the thing is we coming out of this pandemic uh you know we've got a massive uh debt to to pay off we're going to need to innovate our way out of it we can't just hope that you know the oil fields are going to somehow pay for the pandemic spending. We're going to have to come up with new ways, new technologies, new industries to you know innovate and sell products and services to the world. That's how we're. Going to, I think we're going to pay off this debt that everyone's so worried about. And in the meantime, we can't let a, an economy, uh, you know, that's trying to retrain and, and retool and re and repurpose itself. That doesn't happen overnight. You have people who need retrain they need to go back and and finish a degree get new degrees get new training get new certificates diplomas etc whatever it is and you can't have them doing that while you're saying well i'm going to make you work this part-time job for minimum wage because it makes me feel better it makes me feel like you're not less of a a person well let's talk about minimum wage and let's talk about debt because debt is such a cliche the the fact that we have this debt that we're never going to be a payoff is a, a pervasive story in our media that just is absolute hogwash actually <laughs> uh, so I have a bit of a bee in the bonnet about it um the thing that matters with with government debt is gdp uh, debt as a percentage of gdp that's the number that matters to economists that's the one that will send you to hell if it's out of control Canada is nowhere near its peak debt in terms of percentage of GDP. That happened in the 1990s uh, under the last years of a conservative government and the first years of a liberal one, uh, after which it fell pretty quickly all through the early thousands until 2008. Uh, We're still nowhere close to the amount that we owed there in terms of percent of GDP. It's a bigger base number in terms of dollars, but that doesn't mean anything in the big scheme of things. And if you want to compare debt uh, in Canada to other nations in the world, you want to know who has the biggest debt of all? It's Japan, one of the most universally respected economies uh, uh, on the planet. Um, Germany has a huge debt, another economy that is usually seen as kind of you know the blue chip economy. It's a nonsense. It's a misunderstanding of, of, of economics that the uh, right wing deliberately uh, spreads, I believe. 
And the progressive parties and the left have really sucked at explaining their side of the, of the argument. You, know, you will not find an economist, a serious economist anywhere, who's saying, don't get more into debt at the moment. Interest rates are incredibly low. Debt is fine. I mean, obviously, there's a limit to everything. You can't keep on getting into more debt and more debt forever. Even with the the expansion of the debt that this just happened, we are nowhere close to a danger number in Canada within the context of what's happening in the rest of the world and within the context of our own history. Uh, So that's just a a cliche that drives me up the wall. (laughs) Well, I would would believe that what you'll see is right now we have a free trade agreement with Europe. I don't know what's going to happen with uh, Britain. I believe there's an agreement either being talked about or if not in the formulation process with Britain because of Brexit and all that. And that's more complicated. We, you know, I, I think you're going to see more more trade agreements around the world uh, spring up post-COVID-19 because we're going to need to see, especially with the first world countries, Japan, Australia, our traditional partners, we're going to see a greater ties with them to get our economies back up and going and thriving because we'll have the capital to invest in our people, to invest in new technologies, in more greener, safer, and, and more productive technologies. I mean, I'm being a, a blind-eyed optimist here, but I'm hoping that, again, by investing in people, we're going to come out of this a, be- a better societies, a better world for not just Canadians, but I hope for all peoples of the world. And yeah, maybe I'm a bit of a rose-colored glasses kind of guy there, but I really think that there's an opportunity for success here. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, that's probably a good uh, point to leave it uh, before I go on another rant about my my pet peeves about economics or anything like that. We'll save that for 2021. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's going to come at some point, guys. I'm sorry. Thanks, everybody who has joined us this year. A special thanks to our patrons who've been willing to support us financially. Uh, That's just uh, a huge... A huge thing. Thank you too to the people who've helped us along the way, uh, Wendy Nicholson and Gail Laws, uh, spring to mind in particular as people who've done work for us uh, that we very much appreciate and has made the podcast better. And um, we thank you, the listeners, above all, for tuning in and, uh, and making this a really fun first five months. Can't quite believe how many episodes we've done so quickly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we're looking forward to the next six months and the next year. And finally, a very Merry Christmas to everybody. I hope everybody who celebrates the season has the very best holiday they can do during this unusual year. Thanks so much, and we'll speak to you in 2021. That's it for this episode of The 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time.
Hi, I'm Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com.